0: Hello and welcome to another episode of mind stories. Today I'm pleased to have on as our guest Jamie Roberts Nelson LMFT. She is the founder of Equilibrium Counseling Services, a teen mental health center in Southern California. After being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, Jamie dove into the literature and lived experiences of neurodivergent people to better understand the nuances of ADHD, autism, and the prevalence of misdiagnosis. Jamie has worked in conjunction with an adolescent psychiatrist assessing and differentiating adolescent symptomatology for over 8 years. In her practice, she provides support and psychoeducation to teens, young adults, and their families to better understand and celebrate the magic of a neurodivergent mind. Today, we talk about the nuances of ADHD diagnosis in adolescence and initial steps to treatment for ADHD. Welcome, Jamie.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So today, the focus is on ADD, and I know you work a lot with adolescents and the assessment of ADD, and, you know, I think you're a great guest because I think a lot of parents or maybe clinicians might be listening to this, wondering about kind of how to think about assessing ADD and kind of thinking about kind of progression of treatment for that.
1: Yes, absolutely. I I do specialize with adolescents and teens. That's both my favorite group of people to work with. And then I have a pet passion of ADD, ADHD, and neurodiversity and how that shows up. And I've just noticed that there there's often a lot missed in that assessment process of being able to identify when it shows up, especially when it overlaps with anxiety or depression or behavior issues. How do we tease it out? How do you tease it out? <laughs> Wonderful question. How do you tease it out? I think that it comes down to Being able to identify some of the nuances that there is a big overlap and often ADHD produces anxiety and anxiety masks ADHD. So I think a lot of times our assessment tools ask one question, but it's really the second and third question about that same topic that reveal the thought process behind it. Hmm. Because if you just ask me, Jamie, do you run late? I'll be like, no, I'm on time always. But if you ask me, Jamie, how do you become on time? I am running out the door. I am scrambling those last five minutes. I am like throwing things together right before and I have to plan it out the night before. So it's not that I just automatically show up on time. There's a lot of work I have to do to be able to do it. And I think if we're just doing assessment, uh, like paper assessments or some of the evaluations, we miss that piece of, well, how do you cope? How do you show up in this way? So I found a lot of success in those secondary questions or the, okay, explain to me how you do that. What's the conversation you have in your mind getting you to that point?
0: Right. And and it's interesting kind of what is that line of, that's kind of part of a kind of ADD picture being late Mm -hmm. versus just, or being on time versus just being able to get somewhere on time. I mean, what's a normal response? So someone says, yes, I can get somewhere on time. And what would a non-ADD response be to those, the follow-up?
1: Well, a non-response would be like, well, it's uh, important to be on time. I just, I I leave with enough time. Got it. So because part of with ADD, there's the processing speed. So for you to say something, the person to download it, translate it and re-upload it, there's a pause. So sometimes I'll give different options. Like when you're working on this, does it sound like this, this, or this to help them kind of identify and put the words together. And so if I put those examples out, a neurotypical person might say, no, no, it's none of those. I just do it versus an ADHD person would be like, Oh my God, that's it. How did you know? That's how I do it. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times we go through these processes individually and we think either everybody else does it, or we start to think something's wrong with us. I'm lazy. I can't do this. I can't keep time. So something's wrong with me. So I need to hide that. And I need to mask
0: and show up in the world a certain way. Got it. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And I think about when I do adult ADD assessments, one of the typical questions you ask has to do with remembering obligations and appointments. And most of the people I see with ADD say, no, I remember them. I just am so meticulous about my calendar and making sure that everything. So these kind of um, compensatory behaviors Mm -hmm. to be able to kind of function in a Mm -hmm. neurotypical world. Right.
1: Right. And especially when you're doing the adult assessments, we figured out ways to cope. I figured out how to do it. So when it comes to adolescence, sometimes if a student has straight A's or they're doing well in school, we don't notice it. And so they'll show up in my office with a mood disorder. I'm really anxious. I'm really depressed. But then when we dig a little deeper, they're anxious because they're like, have this level of perfectionism to keep track of their assignments. Because if I don't keep track of it, I'm going to miss it. And then I'm going to totally forget. So I have to be hyper vigilant about the work. And so that's sometimes how inattentive can be missed in younger populations.
0: Right. And I know that's a special interest of yours, kind of that silent ADD. Absolutely. I think a big part of that is because women are so
1: underdiagnosed, like it's a four to one ratio of males to females being diagnosed with ADHD. So I think often girls come in with, like I said, mood disorder diagnoses or have been having treatment. And it's not doing anything. And so boy, we dig into it. We find the ADHD and we treat that. And suddenly the anxiety is gone. The depression disappears. The majority of women who are diagnosed with ADHD are diagnosed in their thirties and forties. It's a lifetime disorder, which means it was present always. So how are these kids getting through these situations if we're not getting diagnosed into adulthood? So I have a big passion around helping identify it in females, but also the inattentive type, because we have this image in our head of the hyperactive boy
0: bouncing around the classroom. And so kind of breaking some of that stereotype. Mm -hmm. So a few questions. So why do you think it's diagnosed later on in life in females typically, Mm -hmm. and what brings them into treatment at that point in their, in their life?
1: So another big factor in ADHD is that huge life
0: transitions,
1: symptoms increase. So if I have a way of working, I have a system in place and it works, but then something in my life changes, my system no longer works. So we see a big increase when kids go into middle school, when they go into high school when they go into college and when, when they become mothers, because the whole way you function in life has changed. So if I was able to cope with school, I didn't stand out as a behavioral problem. Nobody saw it in middle school or high school. Cause I just got by. So for young girls, that's often how it looks. There's a higher percentage of girls having inattentive type as opposed to hyperactive type or combined type. So then you just get by. And then when you're in adulthood, it's been working, but suddenly all my skills aren't working anymore. There's more pressure. There's more things to manage. My multitasking brain can't keep up suddenly. And we start feeling like we have cognitive issues. I can't remember things. I'm scattered. I'm forgetting all the time. I can't do what I used to be able to do. And then it's it's diagnosed. Got it. Makes sense. Does yeah. <laughs> when you break it down, it makes sense. But there's just a lot we don't see.
0: Right. So okay, thinking about adolescents, right, and parents. How do adolescents typically come into your office? Like, so you had mentioned maybe an adolescent who's the chief complaint might be anxiety or depression. So that's one, right? How do other things come out in kind of a a daily life of a, of an adolescent um, to kind of think, "Hmm, I wonder if, if this is ADD. So the
1: other big factor that I notice is there is a really high rate of self-injury with ADHD. When you bring in the impulsivity and then the depression, there's a high 70% of girls with ADHD have self-injury behavior I also run team support groups. So I get a lot of referrals from treatment centers or from the hospital or for partial hospitalization programs. And so when those kids come to my practice, they've already been in therapy. They've already been in treatment. They have a history of self-injury and they're looking for somebody who can address a higher level of care. And so at that point we start breaking it down. Well, if your antidepressants haven't changed anything, if your anti-anxiety medication hasn't changed anything,
0: maybe it's not serotonin, maybe it's dopamine. Hmm. And then we start to kind of go down that path. And maybe for the listener, a little bit about serotonin versus dopamine <laughs> <Does> the, the <laughs> distinction. Mm-hmm. Well, you're the psychiatrist. Would you like to do that? Oh, part? The, yeah, <laughs> right. That idea about treatment of anxiety or depression has to do with, if you're anxious or depressed, you have low levels of serotonin. And so if you take a medication to help increase that somehow, your symptoms might get better. And then mm-hmm. it's different in terms of ADD. It has more to do with dopamine than serotonin mm-hmm. generally. Right. Just wanted to clarify <laughs> like be like okay I get that. And also part of our conversation is kind of this idea that it's really complicated, right? So a lot of symptoms that you see in adolescents or adults, but we're talking about adolescents, you know, it's hard to know exactly where they're coming from. So, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of why you might see a clinician who might be able to kind of tease that, okay, there's Mm -hmm. self-injurious behavior. There's some anxiety, there's some depression. Where is that coming from? What is the root of that? And that's really what you're getting at in terms of trying to figure Mm -hmm. out what, what that root cause really is instead of, Slapping a diagnosis of depression, slapping a diagnosis of anxiety on it.
1: Right. So I have this image in my mind, always like this Venn diagram of ADHD, anxiety, and depression. And I sometimes work it backwards. And if ADHD is the root cause, often what happens is if I'm in class, I'm an adolescent, I'm in class. I get distracted by something. I daydream for a second. I didn't hear what the teacher said. I don't know what page we're on. Now I'm trying to scramble and find what page are we on in the book? What assignment am I supposed to be doing? And that's the anxiety. And now I'm like nervous. And then it turns into the negative self-talk about, I can never keep up. I can never do this. I'm always bad at this. Well, now I'm distracted again. And I missed the next instruction. And now I'm behind even more. Why even drop me? Mm-hmm. So then when you have the kids who are kind of just quitting, it's like, well, maybe there's just this whole cycle going on that they can't keep up with one thing gets thrown off And I can't get back on track. Right. So that's one way. When someone comes in and says, I have depression. Cool. Let's talk about it. Tell me what's your thought process. What are the things your brain is telling you? How does that show up? When does it show up? And we kind of work it backwards to see what is at that core. And then what is attached to it? Okay. How do your anxiety and your depression hang out together? Because they usually do. So what is that? What is that interaction like? Okay. Is there something else involved in that? Because sometimes I feel like we can figure out. What is anxiety and what is ADHD with the thought process behind it is the anxiety. Just, I'm nervous. I'm uncomfortable. This is overwhelming. In ADHD, the anxiety will sound like, I don't know when to enter the conversation. I feel like somebody's going to judge me when I do, I always talk over, so I might get in trouble if I do it wrong or I need to be extra aware. So the, the conversation in your brain, I think is a lot different between ADHD and anxiety.
0: Right. Right. But over time can look very, very similar.
1: Yes. It can look very similar.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it makes me think about when I think about treatment for anxiety disorder, when I, when I see an adult with anxi- mm-hmm. t- who talks about anxiety and ADD symptoms, mm-hmm. there's always this question of sometimes we don't know. And what do you treat first? Right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we treat the anxiety because it seems like that is a little bit more of a heavier weight versus mm-hmm. sometimes we treat the ADD and mm-hmm. it, it can go both ways, right? Sometimes I just, we decide to treat the ADD first and the person mm-hmm. comes back and is like, I am so much less anxious because I can now focus and I don't have to, worry about not being able to focus on all the things that I'm going to miss. Right. So it is just, it is a complex interplay between, Mm -hmm. you know, those two diagnoses. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think the adolescent part that complicates it a bit more is these kids are at an age where they're figuring out their identity. Who am I? How do I verbalize that to you up until like, 11, 12, 13, kids have always followed what their parents, what my parents are into is what I'm into. In middle school, they start individuating and becoming their own selves. So then how do I describe to you what's going on in my brain if I've never heard those words before? And so I think that's where it's helpful to bring in some of the options in descriptions or checking in with kids. Is this how you're feeling? Helping them name it, Dan Siegel's name it to tame it. I love that. Because if I can name it, then I can understand it. Mm -hmm. So if you have a kid at home and you're not sure what it is, asking some of those second layer questions, well, well, what is the conversation you have with yourself? Or how do you get to that point? And, and identifying the strengths, wow, you got all your homework done tonight. That's awesome. How did that work? What worked for you tonight? As opposed to the comment, a lot of kids get about like, well, you got it done tonight. How come you couldn't do it yesterday? Right. Because the ADHD brain with the dopamine lights up with reward, positivity and reward. If you compliment. If you celebrate, kids want to do it more. If there's a game, if there's a reward, it's exciting. Adrenaline gets going and they want to do it. But so often with ADD and ADHD, we just highlight the inadequacies, how they're not meeting the mark, what they're missing. And that just lowers them more.
0: Yeah. What has been going through my mind, a few questions. So one, I'm kind of thinking about it, if I'm in a parent's shoes, thinking about mm-hmm. my adolescent child, right? Right. One question I wonder if some people are thinking is, you don't want to be suggestible to your adolescent in right. terms of, you know, maybe are you feeling this way? And so I'm wondering if some parents are concerned about being overly suggestive, right? And Absolutely. the other question I have is kind of this big question out there in terms of overdiagnosis of ADD too. Mm-hmm. Two separate questions, really. Mm-hmm. First, the overdiagnosis of ADHD is actually inaccurate.
1: Mm-hmm. We're actually underdiagnosing ADHD. The most recent 2021 research that came out is that up to 11% of the population actually has an ADHD, but only 9% are being diagnosed. And even with that, girls are three times less likely to be diagnosed. So it's actually a misrepresentation. And then especially if you bring it into minority populations, Black or Latino kids are even less like 69% less likely to be diagnosed and have it rewritten off as a behavioral issue or not have access to resources. So it's actually a really big mental health piece. And especially because it has so many overlaps with anxiety and depression. So I'm actually on the side that it's underdiagnosed. And (laughs) so, and I know that that's not the general consensus of just like society. And then the side of being suggestible I have gotten that feedback from parents of that concern, which is why when it first comes up, I ask probing or prompting questions. "Hmm, Tell me more about that. Okay, can you describe how you do that? Describe to me how you get to work on time. Describe to me how you organize yourself. Okay. Take me through that thought process. And then when I see them get stuck or they're having a hard time putting words together, I give multiple options. It's not just, is this how you feel? It's hmm, sometimes I hear people describe it like a, B and C. Do any of those fit for you? And they're usually an ADHD, like a hyperactivity component, an inattentive component and a neurotypical component. Okay. Which of these fit for you? Mm-hmm. And then they'll pick one and I'm like, okay, can you explain to me how it fits to you? So that they're being the one identifying it, but I'm kind of giving the options to help find the hat that
0: fits. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the other thing kind of I'm thinking about with the general feeling that, okay, ADD is overdiagnosed, right? Which may not be accurate. This idea of what is normal? What is neurotypical? There is a degree of inattentiveness in someone's life. If they're, especially if they're doing something, they're not that excited about, right. Or Mm -hmm. interested. in. where is that line? What is that line that says this is ADD versus this is just normal adolescent behavior? Yes. So that's a (laughs) That
1: is a hard question because, because there is an overlap. I think it comes into, that's where we look at the history that ADHD is a lifetime thing We're born with, with it. So if it's just this situation, oh, now I'm an adolescent and I don't care for math anymore. So I'm not going to do my math. That's very situationally specific, right? Versus with ADHD, if there's not enough stimulation, then there's not enough dopamine. It doesn't matter what the topic is.
0: Mm.
1: There's going to be this universal piece. If that part of my brain isn't turning on, I literally cannot force myself to do it. So the biggest example that comes up is like cleaning. My kid won't clean their room. Nobody likes clean or very few people enjoy cleaning. Most of us <laughs> don't Some want do. to. Some like to most of us don't, but we, we make ourselves. But when you talk to somebody who's neurodiverse, It's like pulling teeth or it's complete block. I literally don't know where to start. I can't get up to do it. So I'll ask kids to describe like, okay, you say you're being lazy or you're avoiding it. What's, what's going on in your brain when you're like, I don't want to do my homework. It's like, it's not fun. I don't want to do it. That's being more neurotypical. I'd rather do this. That's neurotypical. And ADHD would be, I'm sitting at my desk. It's in front of me. And I sit there for three hours or I sit there for an hour and a half and I don't have anything done. It takes me three times longer to get through it. That's some of like the difference. Cause then I'll ask the neurotypical kid. Okay. When you have to do it and you sit down and you get it done, how long does it take you? Oh, I can get it done in like 15 minutes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: An ADHD kid, even when they sit down to do it, they'll either rush through it and they'll miss half of the questions or not read the instructions. Mm-hmm. Or it'll take them three times as long to get through something. It goes back to those secondary questions. Okay, if you're not interested in this, tell me why. And their answers are very, very different. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So, how does the, because these are questions I often think about when I assess patients. So, where does the overfocus and mm-hmm. hypertension and ADD come in then? How do you make sense of that?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, when it's something I'm super into, there's a lot of excitement, which means my body's producing a lot of dopamine, which means my brain is turned on. Often right now it's with the phones, it's with video games, or it's if they're really into art, those are kind of the top ones for ADHD right now. And a lot of parents will say, well, they can focus on the things they want to do. Well, yeah, their brain's producing dopamine. Of course they can focus on what they want to do. They're stimulated. So I think that's where it comes in as if I'm into it. I can just get into this tunnel. And it's this really exciting, really fun thing because my brain's getting what it needs.
0: Got it. So it really is kind of specific on the task that lights up that dopamine. Yes.
1: So that's where you can figure out a lot with ADHD is it's very situational as opposed to like singular depression will overlap with everything. Or if you're generalized anxiety, it'll pretty much cover everything. ADHD is very situational. If I'm with the people I like, I'm good. If I'm by myself, I might not be. If I'm doing a task that I enjoy, I can be very successful at it. But if it's something that's not stimulating, I might not even be able to get started. So that's where we see, oh, it's inconsistent. So then they must not have it because they can focus sometimes, but not focus other times. Well, yeah, that's part of the definition, right? right. <laughs> but I could see how that's kind of
0: confusing to parents.
1: Absolutely. Cause I think from the outside, then it looks like, well, they don't want to do what they don't want to do.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So someone comes in, you think, okay, you know, after asking these secondary tertiary questions and mm-hmm. it really makes sense that this client that you see, maybe they don't have a neurotypical brain and they have more of an ADD brain, right? Mm-hmm. What do you do from there? Do you do psych testing to confirm diagnosis? How do you work with psych testing?
1: Yeah. So I, I first start with psychoeducation. I'll go through my assessment questions and then I'll bring the parent into the conversation and I'll make the suggestion and it'll usually be a light suggestion and ease into it. about like, you know, I've noticed a couple things that they've said and you've said that are leading me to wonder about ADHD or ADD. Here's what I'm seeing. And then I'll give them some resources. of, like, why don't you guys go do some research too? So I'll give them like Attitude Magazine because they have great, really brief articles or Chad or different places to do their own self assessment.
0: And I'll make sure we put that in the the podcast description too. Okay. I have a couple of links specific to what we're talking about as well.
1: So then I'll say like, you go read it and tell me if you feel like it fits for you. If you read it and it doesn't fit, cool. We'll move on. If you read it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been going through. That gives us more information for the next step. So I really start with a lot of psychoeducation and self-identifying within the family so that we're all on the same page. And then I will also do the recommendation to psych testing and I'll give a couple referrals for that. And I'll usually in that first session, when I make the suggestion. I'll say, why don't you call and make the appointment? Cause sometimes they're scheduled out a bit and that'll give us time to do our research. But if we wait, it just pushes everything
0: out. And can we do a quick word about what psych testing is? I did an a whole episode on it, but can you, for the new listener, kind of what, what psych testing is? Yeah,
1: Psych testing is with a psychologist who does a full battery of different type of cognitive and neuropsychological testing to identify how the brain specifically works for you as an individual. So they find out processing speed, how you internalize information, auditory versus verbal, kind of breaking it down very specifically, how your brain learns, takes in information and can bring it back out. So that can help us identify much more specifically exactly how it is showing up in a person, or if it's something else. So it helps us rule everything out. So it can look up if there is another specific learning disability, if there's dyslexia, if it's autism, if it is ADHD, if it is just anxiety, or if it's trauma. And it can really give us that specific, more
0: concrete research-based evidence. But kind of think of it as basic labs for your brain. Mm -hmm. Yes. In terms of attention and function and all that, so. Yes, exactly.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm.
0: All right. So that's kind of how you work in the psych testing It's kind of a little bit later on because it is more of a process. It is. Okay. So you identify it's, it is ADD. It's been confirmed by psych testing. What, Mm -hmm. what do you do from there?
1: What do you do from there? That comes into kind of the family's comfort with different types of treatment. If we're going with the evidence that ADHD is a product of a neurological condition and not enough dopamine in the brain, then it is a chemical imbalance. And if we believe that is a chemical imbalance, then we need chemicals, right? So then it goes to, okay, well, maybe we just do an assessment with a psychiatrist and see what they say, or let's bring in some of this and let's just try it out and see what that feels like. There's actually research supporting that kids who have ADHD, who receive treatment early on have a 60% reduction in drug abuse in their teenage and adult years. So a lot of parents have this concern that with a methylphenidate, well, we're introducing drugs and there's there's gonna be addiction later on. And it's actually the complete opposite. When this condition is not treated, we self-medicate. People turn to drugs or alcohol to just calm their brain. So if we can give them something that's regulated and modified and we know what it is, there's a lot more control in the situation for them. So I really ease into that, making sure people have the research they need, the information, they understand it. They're with a psychiatrist who sees and understands it specifically with adolescents, because it is an area that people have a lot of hesitation and concern about. And I want to be very respectful of that, but it also goes along with if your brain at the prefrontal cortex isn't turned on, it's harder for us to do the behavioral work. And what is the behavioral work? That's your specialty. Right. And that would be where I come in of, The behavioral work, I think number one is understanding how your brain works. If I know I have to be stimulated to get something done, okay, what are the things I need to change in my environment to help me engage with a non-preferred task? So like we were talking earlier with adult assessment, there's all these coping skills we've figured out. So it's now helping the teen and the adolescent identify what their coping skills are. So they're conscious that they're making that effort. So they don't haphazardly fall into a routine, but they're saying, oh, I need to study. I know I study better when there's music, but I don't want lyrics in my music. So now we are able to pick out the right atmosphere to be able to study. A lot at first, though, is about processing the emotional attachment to either having that label or not having the label. Mm -hmm. Often, especially with older teens, there's this mixed reaction of, relief of figuring out what's going on, but also a bit of frustration and anger that it took so long because it's been present their entire life. So a big part of what I'm doing is that emotional processing and a lot with ADHD is emotional dysregulation. Like it may be valid that I'm upset, but my upset is way too big. So how can we find that range? That is an appropriate way to be upset because you're allowed to be mad. You're allowed to be upset But what is an appropriate way to do that? And then we'll process through that. Or it's the social skills of connecting with people. So that'll really be what my area is. But I do work with ADHD coaches when when adolescents need more executive function structure.
0: And I think that's a distinction that I actually need to kind of understand a little bit. So it's like your role, it's more complicated in terms of how you approach it and it's more nuanced and integrative in a way. And so I guess the question is for me too, this idea of what is a coach versus kind of a a therapist who specializes in ADD, what's the difference? It sounds like they work together. We do work together, yes.
1: I think the reason it's a little bit convoluted right now is because there's not a lot of us doing it. One, there aren't a lot of adolescent therapists. We need so many more of those. And then to bring in the specialization of ADHD, there just aren't very many. So I do end up taking on a hat of being kind of like the orchestrator of, okay, can we get all your resources in place? In that sense, it does look like a coach. But once we have it identified, I try and separate out who's doing what role. Mm -hmm. So as a psychotherapist, my job is emotion. And so holding with that, I try and then, okay, now that we know what's going on, let's talk about how it shows up in your life. How are you receiving this? What is it like? Where are your stress levels currently? And then with a coach, the ADHD coaches I've worked with focus a lot more on structure, systems, executive function, and they are available to clients much more freely than the boundaries we have around therapy. So one of the coaches that I work with He'll check in and text a client every day. How's homework going today? Mm -hmm. Okay, time to get started on this assignment. Hey, remember you have a test on Friday. So it's bringing in those prompts and often bringing in the coach to do those prompts. We take that job off of the parents because so often the conflict in the relationships between parents and adolescents is about homework, is about chores, is about this. And then they lose the relationship piece. So if we can outsource executive function to a coach, then parents and kid can go back to just being parents and kid. And then those external prompts, that external accountability we need can then be used with a coach.
0: Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the work you do is so important because it's this idea of if you think about all these ways to treat ADD mm-hmm. and medications are one of them, but they only work when you take them. Right. And right. you're not necessarily okay. learning skills to kind of help you be able to function in life without the reliance of a medication. And so what you do is really kind of be like, how can you move through life knowing that this is the way your brain works? Right. And right. how do we address that? How do we evaluate with each transition you have, how you're going to work with that?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A lot of it comes back into reverting or reframing something negative self-talk we've taken on. So when a kid comes in and they're like, oh, I'm so lazy, I can't get to this. It's like, okay, wait, we know there's executive function. Are you actually being lazy or is this hard for you to focus on? Is this a stimulation piece? How can we change the environment so that you can achieve it? So then that negative self-talk decreases and therefore the anxiety and the depression decrease. But I also think with your example of the medicine only works if you take it and it doesn't teach skills. True, fact. But I also think if I'm drowning in the ocean, you can't teach me how to swim because I'm drowning. But if right. you give me a life vest and I can now keep my head above water, now I can use my skills in knowing how to swim. And you know what, in a little bit, maybe I can take the life vest off and I can swim because now I've learned how to use those skills. But I can't learn the skills if I'm underwater. I love that.
0: That's <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> that makes a lot of sense. It's like, mm-hmm. yes, it, it, it might get you to the place where you can actually then work the therapy. Yeah. 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 And that's where we see a lot of adults deciding
1: not to use medication because they do have the skills, but you can't build the skills if you don't have the base. Mm -hmm. So just thinking of like a pyramid, if I don't learn those basic skills at a young age, it's going to be harder for me later on. So if we can do that younger, then they learn that as they're going. So in my practice, my, my motto is be who you needed when you were younger by Aisha Sadiq. Because being able to go back and provide the resources so that younger and younger, we can be able to process trauma or emotion regulation or know how to advocate for ourselves, the better off the kids are gonna be set up as adults going on.
0: I like that. Well, I think that might be a good place to end because I know we're running out of time. <laughs> and I, for sure, we're gonna list some resources for the listener, list some information about you and your practice and how you work. Any parting words or anything that we kind of forgot to mention that you really felt like we needed to address in this short time we had together? I mean, I could talk about this forever
1: and it's like could go on and on. So I think the one thing that I want to leave off with is I feel that ADHD is a superpower. I think that it brings, it is my magic. And I think the people who are able, when you're able to understand what's going on in your mind and harness that, we can really create really cool things because it is a a way in which our brains think out of the box and differently than the masses. And so if we can switch it into being a strength as opposed to a deficit, we empower the kids hmm. because it is a power. And if this is how my mind is formed, well then let's celebrate it because this is what it's always going to be. And so I think that's what I want to leave off with is this, isn't a negative. This isn't a detrimental thing. It is, it is just a factor. And how can we use that factor? And statistically, a lot of CEOs, business owners, artists, creators all have some form of neurodiversity. So there's a lot of like really cool aspects of, of this as well.
0: Agreed. Yeah. That was a good place to leave off. Yay. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. I hope this is helpful to the listener. It's been helpful to me to conceptualize assessment and path of treatment of ADD in a way that, you know, I don't always think about. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate you inviting me on. And I'm really
1: excited that you're getting the word out about so many different mental health information.
0: This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and nine offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe.